Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and open to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I want you to consider that the, the goal of all ministry is really the increase of Christ. The goal of everything that we do here at Grace Life Church, the goal of any ministry you're involved in, is that Christ would increase. And, and that increase is desired to be seen, on the one hand, in salvation. We want to see Christ increase as individuals come to saving faith in him as they're born from above and believe on him and receive eternal life. At the same time, we also want to see Christ increase in sanctification, that those who are delivered from sin, who are born from above, who believe on Christ to receive eternal life, that they would begin to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And as that takes place in our lives, Christ increases. And this is really why Paul writes the following. He says this, We do not preach ourselves. There were some that Paul was dealing with who were preaching themselves. Typically, this is what you see among false teachers. They preach themselves. Paul says, We don't preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. The purpose of Paul's preaching was to preach Jesus as Lord. He determined to know nothing among the people to whom he ministered, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so when you look at the the ministry of the Apostle Paul, it was a ministry that sought to exalt Christ, to put Christ on display. And that's really a, a mark of faithful ministry, the exaltation of Christ, where Christ is given center stage. And really, that becomes a, a way that you can assess any other religious system or, or any other aberrant form of Christianity, any sort of false teacher-oriented ministry. You can just assess whether it's Christ that is being exalted. Think of Roman Catholicism, which we talked about last time. How brightly does Christ shine in that system? Not brightly at all. What does shine brightly? Mary, the Pope, the Mass, the priesthood, the liturgy. But where's Christ? Or consider the charismatic movement. What shines brightly there? You've got oftentimes the gift of tongues and the Spirit. The the two things that mark out a a charismatic church are the, the gift of tongues and, and the Spirit, and both are actually counterfeit. The, the gift of tongues they're, they're practicing is not actually the gift, and the, the Spirit that they're heralding is not actually a true image of the Spirit of God because he's totally out of sync with the Father and the Son, a completely different person from the Father and the Son in terms of his essence. And so where's Christ in that movement? Oftentimes Absent. Or consider the ministries of faith healers. How brightly does Christ shine there? Again, apart from mentioning his name, he's not there. He's he's absent. And what is at the forefront, what what does take center stage, is the so-called faith healer. But there's no Christ. In each of these cases, something is increasing Something is being exalted. In some cases, many different things are being exalted. It just isn't Christ. And the goal of all ministry is Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would increase. And nowhere is this better pictured than in the ministry of John the Baptist. And in the, you're going to see that in our text this morning because the Apostle John circles back to sort of tie up a, a loose end from John's ministry. And so let's look at it. John chapter 3, picking it up in verse 22. It says this, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. 
John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from above or from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. This was the aim of John the Baptist, wonderfully embodied in him. And so we're going to see this. We're going to see that Christ is the goal of all ministry, that a faithful mark of biblical or a mark of faithful ministry is the exaltation of Christ. And that requires humility because if Christ is going to be exalted, then, then faithful ministry is seeking the exaltation of another. It's not seeking our own exaltation. And man's fallen tendency is always to seek the exaltation of self. And so this passage provides a heart check. This is a, a wonderful opportunity for us to, to check our hearts and, and ask ourselves questions like, whose kingdom am I building? Whose exaltation am I seeking? Does Christ receive center stage in my life and ministry? And this comes to bear upon every one of us. Because whether formally or informally, we're all doing ministry, simply practicing the one another's of Scripture is doing ministry. And so this impacts pastors and deacons. It impacts you if you're a ministry lead, a Bible study shepherd. If you're teaching in the women's ministry, it impacts musicians, Sunday school teachers, the sound crew, those who serve in Awana. It even impacts fellowship coordinators and contributors. It impacts everything that we do. Every aspect of life and ministry needs to be considered against the, the backdrop of whether Christ is the one being exalted or whether the exaltation is falling to us. It impacts your social media presence what you post, why you post it. It impacts what you contribute to Bible study discussions, how you care for your home, how you conduct yourself in the community, in the workplace. Again, it impacts everything because Christ should be the goal of all that we do. And so let me give you a roadmap. No need to write these down at this point just a, an idea of what we're going to see here. We're going to see ministry overlap. And the overlap is the ministry of Jesus and John. Then we're going to see ministry jealousy, as John's disciples are jealous of the increase of Christ. And then we're going to see ministry humility, where John models for us what humility looks like in ministry. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first, ministry overlap. Ministry overlap. And you see this beginning in verse 22. It says there, note this, after these things. Now, that's not a, a real strict time marker, but it definitely places the events that we're about to look at following the events that took place from 2.13 of John all the way to the end of the section we looked at last time in chapter 3, verse 21. And so after these things is referring to after our Lord's trip to Jerusalem for the Passover and after his clearing of the temple and, and after his, his signs and wonders which were carried out during the feast thereafter and, and after his discussion with Nicodemus, which we saw last time along with the Apostle John's commentary on that discussion. And so this is after the things that we've seen beginning back in John 2.13. And so look again at verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And since Jerusalem is already in the land of Judea, which means that Jesus was already in Judea, land here likely refers to the countryside. Jesus 
took his ministry from sort of being urban in Jerusalem to the rural regions of Judea. And it says, middle of verse 22, there he was spending time with them, that is the disciples, and baptizing. So Jesus was spending time here with his disciples. This is really, since chapter 1, the first time that we get any indication of Jesus spending this time with them. And at this point, the disciples may only consist of Andrew, John, Peter, James, Philip, and Nathaniel, although it's likely that James, uh, John's brother James was there as well. And so Jesus is discipling his disciples. He's pouring into them and preparing them for future ministry. This is their seminary training. And Jesus is their professor. Their professor. And while there's no question that I would take their seminary training over mine in a heartbeat, there would just be one condition. I would want to have all that I have right now before receiving that seminary training. You say, well, what do you have now that they didn't have? Well, I'm going to flesh this out, but the answer is the Spirit. Turn to John 7.39, because you're going to say, well, didn't they have the Spirit? Well, they did in a sense, but not in the sense that we do now. And so turn to John 7 and verse 39. Jesus has just made a wonderful declaration about living waters flowing in the innermost being of the believer in verse 38. And then he says this in verse 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so we're going to see this in John, that the, the giving of the Spirit is a future reality, and we know that that future reality points forward to the Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit began to indwell God's people. And really, it was only after the apostles received the Spirit that we see the men that we see in Acts and the epistles. Until then, they were a little bit slow, a little bit dense. They, they struggled to understand and comprehend the teaching they were receiving from Jesus. But then comes the Spirit, and all of a sudden, these uneducated men are speaking with great power, great clarity, great boldness. In fact, look at John 14, 17, because there you, you see this principle being fleshed out a little bit. And we'll, we'll no doubt dive more deeply into these realities as we, as we come to these texts in the flow of John's gospel but in John 14, 17, it says this. In fact, go back to verse 16. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Then verse 17, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. And notice this statement. But you know him because he abides, note this, with you and will be future tense in you. And so there seems to be this distinction between the Spirit in salvation pre-Pentecost and the Spirit in salvation post-Pentecost, where the Spirit was with the Old Testament saint, and in this case was with the disciples, but not yet in the disciples, not yet indwelling the disciples. That was a, a reality that became a reality in Acts chapter 2. And even fleshing this out further, look at John 16, 7 for a moment. In John 16, 7, Jesus says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus declares that it is advantageous for him to go away, that the Spirit would come implying the Spirit was not present in a way that he would be in, in, in Acts 2 and thereafter. You say, well, why would it be to the advantage 
of the disciples to our advantage for Jesus to go to the Father and send the Spirit. Here it is. Because Christ would no longer be with them, he would be in them. Through the indwelling Spirit, we have the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ indwells us. And it's better to have Christ in us than it is to have him with us. And so there's no question, would I take this seminary training ahead of of what I received? Yes, save one condition. I want to do it with the Spirit indwelling me. And really, that just highlights the privilege that we have. We are are very privileged to be this side of Pentecost and to be indwelt by the Spirit of God and to have Christ in us. But for obvious reasons, this would have been precious time. The disciples were in the very presence of the incarnate Word. And so Jesus is spending time with them, and he's discipling them. What else is happening? Notice the final word of verse 22, baptizing. There was baptism taking place. And so initially, Jesus' ministry was just a continuation of John's. Initially, Jesus just carried on the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is not the baptism that we understand, that we see in Acts and, and beyond. This is a a, a replication, a continuation of John's baptism. This is, this is still preparatory. And Jesus, at this time, was no doubt preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven was at hand because the king was present. And so Jesus is proclaiming a, a, a repentance message, calling Israel to repent because the kingdom is present, because the king is at hand, and he was taking part in and, and, and fulfilling a baptism of repentance, just like John's for the forgiveness of sin. Now, Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing, and you can actually see that in the opening three verses of John chapter 4. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 2 comes now this parenthesis, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. So Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptism, and that's probably for obvious reasons. I mean, if you had been baptized by Jesus, you would no doubt be boasting in that in some way, shape, or form. Who baptized you? Oh yeah, well, I got baptized by Jesus. And Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians where he says, look, I may have baptized Crispus and Gaius and and the household of Stephanus, but that's about it. And I'm glad because otherwise there'd be all this division among you because I baptized some and didn't baptize others. And so Jesus didn't actually do the baptizing. His disciples did. But what's interesting is that Jesus has an overlapping ministry with John the Baptist, because while Jesus was discipling and baptizing in the countryside of Judea, John was continuing to minister as well. Look at verse 23. It says, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. Now, at first glance, that might seem somewhat strange that John would continue to do his ministry even while Jesus was present and doing ministry as well? I mean, why is John still preaching and baptizing? And the answer lies in the region he's in. Anon, near Salem, is north. It's in the region of Samaria. And so you have Judea in the south, and in the further north you've got Galilee. In between Judea and Galilee you have Samaria. And so John moves north into Samaria and continues his forerunner ministry there because at that point, Samaria hadn't received the preaching of John the Baptist that he was the light or that he was the one testifying to the light. And interestingly enough, where's Jesus going to be in John chapter 4? He's going to head toward Galilee, but to get there, he's got to go through Samaria. And who does he encounter there? The Samaritan woman. 
And so John is just continuing to fulfill his, his ministry. He's the forerunner, and he's moved to a new section, a new area, and he's preparing the way there for Christ as well. And so there's no competition here. You can already see the humility of John coming out as he makes room, as it were, for Jesus to do his ministry in Judea. John had fulfilled his purpose there, and so he moves north into Samaria and begins to carry on his ministry there. And you'll note it says there, verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into, into prison. Why that comment? Well, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what you have is the temptation of Jesus, and then immediately following that temptation, you have Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Well, what John is showing us is that between the temptation of Christ and the ministry that begins in Galilee is this little ministry window where he's, he's ministering in the countryside of Judea. And so John is just expanding our understanding of the history and life of Jesus Christ. By the way, kind of an interesting point, you'll note that the Apostle John goes out of his way to indicate that this Anon near Salem was a place that had much water. Why would that be? It would be because John's not sprinkling. He's immersing as baptism is full immersion. And so again, there's no temptation here. There's no, there's no competition between John and Jesus. John's humility is already on display. He had served his purpose in the region of Judea, and so he, he gave the spotlight to Christ there, left that region, and moved into Samaria to continue his work as the forerunner for Messiah. But as is often the case, though John's heart was in the right place, and though John understood that his role was in place to be able to facilitate the increase of Christ, some of his disciples didn't quite feel the same way about all of that. And so if you're taking notes, jot down second, ministry jealousy. Ministry jealousy, you see this in verse 25. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, that therefore indicates the purpose of the, the verses we just looked at is to show that these ministries are overlapping, that Jesus and John were ministering at the same time. And it was this overlap in ministries that resulted in the controversy that we're about to look at now. And that it was over purification likely points to the, the reality of baptism, that for some reason there was this controversy between John's disciples and this Jew about whose baptism was better, whose baptism was more valuable, more precious, more maybe even efficacious or something like that. And it would need to be about baptism because otherwise we'd have no reason to see any connection between this discussion between John's disciples and the, the certain Jew and the, the conversation, the, the discussion his disciples bring up with John the Baptist in the very next verse. And so what seems to be happening here on some level is that this Jew comes along and makes some comment about Jesus' baptism. Maybe he is saying that it's better and John's disciples are taking exception to that. They disagree with that assessment of things. And so, and, and really this was more than just a discussion. Because the, the word here in the Greek indicates it was a debate or an argument. So they were debating this issue together. There was an argument taking place. And so they bring that argument to John the Baptist in verse 26. And it says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, and notice they don't even mention his name. They don't even call him Jesus. He who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testify, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Which is just jealous exaggeration. And so these disciples are jealous for their rabbi. 
And really what you see here is that some of John's disciples were struggling to transition to Jesus. Remember, when John said, behold, the Lamb of God, and you had Andrew and John who were together and heard John say that, they left John and followed Jesus. That was the the whole purpose of John's ministry. But these disciples are staying with John and and they're clinging to John and they don't like what they're seeing about Jesus. So somehow these disciples don't really get it. In fact, even as you go into Acts, you find out that there are still disciples of John as of Acts 16 or 18. I can't remember the the ministry in Ephesus. And so you have this this principle of of disciples of John that carry on and haven't quite embraced Jesus just yet. And again, they don't even identify Jesus by name. They just refer to him as the one John had testified to. So their allegiance is definitely to John. They clearly failed to recognize the purpose of his ministry. And this actually comes up quite often in ministry, this sort of jealousness for, for one's particular teacher, the, one's particular leader. In fact, turn to Numbers 11 for a moment. It comes up in the ministry of Moses. And the culprit here is Joshua. And you, you see a response from, from Moses that's going to be very similar to the response that we're going to see in John the Baptist. In Numbers 11, in verse 26, it says this, But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were all prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And so Joshua here is is jealous that this These two individuals are prophesying in the camp, and Moses says, don't be jealous for my sake. Would that all of God's people prophesied. You see the same thing in in our Lord's ministry as well. Turn to Mark 9 for a moment. Only here, the, the difference is, it's not so much a jealousy for Jesus as much as it's a jealousy for us, that is, Jesus and the twelve. This comes from the Apostle John himself. Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. This was a concern. He's not following us, and he's casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. And the implication would be he's not listening to us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. And so this comes up all the time. And because we have the same fallen heart that Joshua has and that that John and the other disciples have, we have this same tendency as well. We're capable of, of the very same thing. And isn't this the same thing that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians? where the Corinthians were saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. And so we can do the same thing. You can do this with your your favorite preacher. You can do this with your theological camp. You might even do this with me. In fact, one of the ways that is often expressed where this sort of attitude of jealousy is often expressed is between churches where where one church wants to exalt itself over another church and one church wants to say, well, it's better than your church. Where you're debating over whose church is the better church. Now, I would encourage any Christian to deeply love their church and be deeply committed to their body and even to, to, to esteem precious, not just the body, but even the pastors who are part of the body. But when affection for your church results in debate about whose church is better, it's just pride. 
It's no longer love and affection for your church. It's now just been about you. You're using your church or your preferred preacher or your theological camp to elevate yourself. And that dishonors Christ. And so there's heart check number one. We have the same tendencies as the apostle or as the disciples of John. And they were not happy with the fact that their rabbi was in the process of decreasing while Jesus was in the process of increasing. That meant they were out of step with reality and out of step with what God was doing in the world. And so we too are capable of ministry jealousy. But if you're taking notes, jot, now, jot down now third, ministry humility. Ministry humility. Look at verse 27. This is John's response to their accusation, as it were. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Just a a gentle way for John to tell his disciples that you are out of step with heaven on this. And the way the word heaven is being used there, it's what's known as a circumlocution. It's a a way to, to refer to God in a veiled manner. And so heaven is pointing to God. John is saying, you are out of step with God. And what's amazing about this statement is it's a truism. It's, it's, a, it's a maxim. It applies to all of life. This statement that a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven applies to everything. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that a person has. He's sovereign over a man's intellectual abilities. He's sovereign over a person's economic opportunities, his wealth. I mean, God is sovereign over where you're born in the world. And certain people are born in more privileged places and certain people aren't. And God's in control of what family you're born into. If you're born into a a well-to-do family, then you're going to have some privileges that, that someone who isn't won't. Wealth, prestige, popularity, yes, even salvation itself is granted by God sovereignly. It comes from heaven, and that's true just as is here in terms of the ministry that God entrusts a man with. John is trying to help his disciples see that what is happening in the ministry of Jesus has been given to him from heaven, from God. And really, Paul says something very similar to this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He writes, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Which again is just highlighting that everything we have is a gift. It comes to us from God. And to boast in a gift is utterly foolish. So implicit in the complaint of John's disciples is the notion that Jesus has taken something that wasn't his and that he had taken it away from John. And John says, no, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from God. And there's a bit of an irony here because Just look at verse 28 for a moment. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. They heard John. They they knew John wasn't the Christ. They they knew that John was pointing forward to another, that that Jesus is the Christ. And, And they've already even admitted that. They did so back in verse 26 where it says, He who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you testify. They they knew John wasn't the Christ. They knew Jesus was the Christ. But for some strange reason, they think John's going to have the same concerns they have. And yet it's just the opposite. Look at verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. The friend here is what we would call the best man. And in that culture, a best man was given many responsibilities. He would be 
heavily involved in the details of the wedding, and those weddings would last for a week. They would be planned months in advance, and so the, the friend or best man would have a, a huge responsibility in making sure the wedding took place. And among those responsibilities, the most important responsibility that the, the, the friend had was to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And that's the imagery that John is drawing from here. As he brings, that is the best man, brings the bride to the bridegroom, he hears the voice of the bridegroom, and he rejoices because he knows the moment has arrived where the bride and the bridegroom are going to be joined. And that pictures John's ministry. He was the forerunner. He came to prepare the bride. He came to prepare her for Christ. And when Christ had come and was now on the scene, he was, he was handing the bride off to Christ. He was giving the bride into Christ's hands. And now he was hearing the, the voice of the bridegroom, and it was just joy and adulation, not jealousy and competition. It was great excitement. His joy was complete. He was rejoicing to hear Christ's voice. It was everything that he had been anticipating was the whole purpose of his ministry. He never lost sight of that. It was always to prepare the people of God for the coming of Messiah. And that joy and adulation is a very different response than his disciples who were concerned about John's decrease and didn't like that Jesus was increasing. And so John says, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's just an amazing statement. I mean, if you think about John the Baptist and how prolific his ministry was, how prolific his preaching was, I mean, he created quite a stir in his preaching ministry. He was extremely popular among the people. They esteemed him as a prophet. Jesus said of him, among those born of women, there had not arisen anyone greater than John. That is some high praise. He was powerful in his preaching. He was fiery in his preaching. He could have easily have become proud, enjoyed the accolades, relished the limelight, craved the center stage. He could have easily had become more about building his own kingdom than ultimately pointing people to Christ. But he was humble, and he wanted nothing more than for Christ to increase, even if it meant him decreasing. In fact, that's what he wanted, rejoicing in his own decrease. The increase of Christ is the goal of all ministry, and where Christ isn't elevated, something is seriously wrong. Any religious system that doesn't elevate and exalt Jesus Christ is essentially demonic. If everything else is elevated and Christ is absent, you can know that Satan is present. But as you think about applying this even to our own lives, that's not really what we struggle with, is it? That's not the way this plays out in our lives. The problem that we tend to have is the desire to be the one through whom Christ is elevated. We want to be the vessel. We want to be the one through which Christ increases. That's more so our issue. But our hearts are not in the right place when it isn't enough that Christ is elevated, but it has to be you who elevates him. Which really isn't even seeking the increase of Christ at all. Instead, it's functionally using Christ for your own increase. It's using Christ to exalt ourselves. And you know you're in that place when you can see someone else excelling, when you can see someone else progressing or, or they're being recognized and you don't like it. If you can see someone being used of God to exalt his son and there is an internal rub that's going on in that, your engine light is on. 
Because either you want them to not have what they have or you want what they have. And if your engine light's on, then that signal is it's time to get alone with God and to pray it out and to wrestle with him to bring your heart back to the place that it needs to be to understand that this is about the exaltation of Jesus Christ and not about your own exaltation. That, that engine light left on in any one of our hearts is spiritually detrimental. Proverbs tells us pride goes before a fall. But on the flip side, if you are excelling and you desire to excel still more, then the question is this, why? What's your motive for excelling still more? Wanting to excel still more is not necessarily a bad thing, especially if God's using you to exalt his son. But why is it that you want to excel still more? Is it for the exaltation of Christ or is it for your own exaltation? What's your motive for excelling? Are you seeking your own increase? If that's the case, then your engine light's on too. And so that's got to be addressed. Or consider this, if, if you sense that someone is jealous of you, if you sense that someone is looking at your ministry and is showing signs that they're competitive with you, how do you handle that? How do you respond to that? What do you do with that internally? Do you take delight in it? Do you find it fulfilling, satisfying? Do you feed or exploit it in the other person in any way? Or do you seek to do whatever you can to kill the competition, kill the rivalry? get to the place where both of you are striving for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. When someone is almost using impure motive to fuel their desire to exalt Christ, and you can see that, and sometimes you can. I mean, sometimes it's evident when someone is seeking to exalt Christ and is doing so from impure motives. It's totally about them. It's not about Jesus Christ himself. How would you respond to that? When they're using Christ to exalt themselves. You might be tempted to respond with disdain. But then comes the Apostle Paul. He was imprisoned, and there were brothers who were taking advantage of it. They resented Paul. They resented his prominence, they resented his apostolic authority, they, they resented the attention that he received in his ministry, and so they were preaching Christ out of envy and strife. They were preaching the true gospel, Paul refers to them as brethren, but with wrong motives. They were seeking to lower Paul and exalt and exalt themselves, elevate themselves. And they were doing so thinking that it would cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. They may have been undermining his character. They may have been minimizing his giftedness. But they were trying to do Paul harm while he was imprisoned for the gospel. Now, how would you respond to that? I mean, you would probably be upset. I mean, I think my natural tendency in that situation would be to be upset. I would be frustrated. I would find that pretty repulsive, repugnant, awful, disdainful to use Christ in that way. A lack of love. Do you not know the love of the brethren? You can't treat a brother like that. And yet, what's Paul's response? Listen to this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. That's amazing. Now, Paul can only say that because Christ was, in fact, being preached, and the true gospel was being preached. Paul wouldn't have rejoiced 
if some false gospel was being preached or some false Christ was being represented. They were preaching the gospel. Their motives were just impure. And Paul, even though it came at his expense, didn't care so long as Christ is exalted, even if it's to his own diminishment, sinful diminishment, he rejoices greatly. It's a shocking response. It's really the same response we see in John the Baptist. Now, was Paul there immediately? I mean, did Paul on a dime respond that way? Or did Paul have to wrestle with the Lord and get his heart right? I don't know. We don't know. We just get the fruit of his heart in Philippians chapter 1. But he is showing us the right heart. It's all about the exaltation of Christ, even if it comes at my own expense. And so there's heart check number two. Are you so committed to the elevation of Christ that it doesn't matter through whom it comes? Are you just so overwhelmed with joy when Christ is exalted that it doesn't matter who the vessel is? Or do you find yourself when Christ is being exalted through another that it rubs you wrong because you don't really like that God is using that person for that purpose? Are you so committed to the increase of Christ that you're willing to have it come at your own expense? Could you be content even if it never came through you at all? That's where our hearts need to be. Ministry should always be about the increase of Christ. So what can we say? We can say this. We've said it already, that Christ is the goal of all ministry. And undergirding that is humility. That it would only ever be about the increase of Christ and never about our own. That's where John was. He came as the forerunner for Christ. He, he, he preached the coming of Christ. When Christ came, he said, there he is, the Lamb of God, the one I've been testifying to. He, he willingly watched John and Andrew follow Christ, moves north away from Judea, works in Samaria to prepare the way for Christ there, and even has to gently rebuke his own disciples who fail to understand that what's happening is what's been given to Jesus from heaven. He must increase, but I must decrease. And really, what a wonderful opportunity for us to just exalt in Christ. He is the Word that was with God before the foundation of the world. He's the very one through whom everything came into existence. He holds all things by the very power of his word. In him, all things hold together. He is the son of God and God who became flesh. He is true God and true man. And he came and entered this world to save sinners he was the only one who could conquer the grave. He was the only one who could fulfill the law. He was the only one who could live in perfect holiness and obedience to the Father. He's the only one who loved the Lord as God with all his mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. He was the only one fit to, to go to the cross and on that cross suffer under the, the wrath of God for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name. He, he was the only one that could swallow that up, give up his breath on his own authority, die on that cross, be buried, and rise again on the third day. He's the only one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now dwells in, in human glorified flesh, where he has even the, the, very, the, the very holes in his hands from the nails that he had on the cross. And he's coming back. He's coming back to bring his kingdom. He's coming back to bring judgment. He'll bring salvation for his people. He is going to return, and he is going to do so in blazing glory. And everything is about him. 
The Father has given to the Son center stage where every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that He is Lord. And it will be a confession that He is Lord either unto salvation, where if we confess Him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved, or it will be a confession that Jesus is Lord unto damnation. I mean, even the demons admitted He was Lord. And so for you, the the question is, have you believed on this Christ? Have you believed on this Son? He's the goal of everything. He's, He's the centerpiece of all of human history. Everything hinges on Christ. His first coming, his second coming, his kingdom, it's all about Christ. Have you believed on him? Is he yours? Do you have Christ in you? And all you can do is turn to him to turn from your sin, which you know to be wrong, and to believe entirely upon his work on the cross, not trusting in baptism, not not trusting in church membership, not trusting in any work that you could ever do to add to the righteousness and work of Christ upon the cross, where you are just entirely at the mercy of Christ and his work, so that when you stand before God on on that day, and he says, why... Why should I allow you into my kingdom? You say, because you sent your son and he paid my penalty in full and he died and he rose from the grave and I am trusting in him alone. That's the way of salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. And so as we wrap up our time in the Word, just consider, you know, we need moments like this. We need moments where we check our hearts, moments of heart checks on humility because pride is so deceitful and so sneaky that it will find a way to to get in there. And we need these moments where we can come before God and really wrestle with Him and search our heart and see if we're really seeking the, the honor of Christ and the increase of Christ or whether we're seeking our own increase. And as we pray, that'll be my prayer, that the Lord would make that evident to any of us so that we can make sure that we are like the Apostle Paul and like Moses and John the Baptist, where the only honor we're concerned about is the honor and glory of Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We we thank you for this portion of Scripture. It almost seems to interrupt the flow of the gospel in some ways, having come out of that section on the new birth and, and even just John 3.16. And yet it's so helpful, so instructive. What a mirror for our hearts it is to just shine the light on any pride that's in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us to deal with that, that you would put your finger on anything that needs to be addressed and that you would meet with us when we have that opportunity to get alone with you, to apply this to our hearts, that you would meet us there and do a wonderful work where we could say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. So Father, thank you for this time in your word. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen.